When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Thursday, August 6th, 2021. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Jack Farley and Jim Bianco. Welcome, gentlemen. Here's your one-sentence summary of what's happening in equity markets right now. Earnings keep coming in strong. Jobless claims down a bit uh, at the margin. U.S. equity markets up fractionally near all-time highs. Big winner of the day. Looks like the Russell 2000 up 1.62% to close at 2231. Jack? That's the financial markets, Ash. In the world in the world of the real economy, the return to work movement hit a real speed bump today with financial juggernauts Wells Fargo and BlackRock both announcing that they are delaying their plans to go full back to work, saying that they will allow uh, people to work from home until at least October 1st. I know Jim Bianco, our guest, has a lot of strong views on that matter. Back to you, Ash. Yeah, talking of other things we're looking at right now in the world of cryptocurrency, specifically Ethereum, EIP-1559, codename London, now live, up right now, Ethereum, just a hair under 2800 By the way, one final note, I wish I could give you the closing numbers from August 6th, which is tomorrow, but today is Thursday, August 5th, 2021. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Jim, what's on your mind right now? Oh, a lot of things. But first, since you guys are New Yorkers, here's my vaccine card. We're legal. OK, so no problem there. Get you guys into the mood. Uh, you got to well. wear it so, around your neck, Jim, for the whole show. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. Or tattoo it to my forehead or something like that. Uh, what's on my mind? Uh, I really think it's the Delta variant. It's the pushback of the opening of the offices. It is the brewing potential of restrictions in the economy. I'm not going to use the word lockdowns. I don't think we're going to go that far, but we're going to give reasons to maybe talk about slower growth in the future, whether it's voluntary because companies decide we're not going back after Labor Day or whether it's mandated by um, uh, whether it's mandated by a government like New York did with the auto show yesterday or any other things that may come down the road. I'm going to throw over to Jack in just a second. But, Jim, what's the state of play that you see? How would you characterize this moment that we're in right now? Uncertain right now uh, in terms of what we're supposed to do. Because on the one hand, you've got a lot of people that are saying do something about the Delta variant. On the other hand, you've got a bunch of people saying don't hurt the economy. And so that is throwing an un an unexpected kink in the story as to whether how we are going with the reopening. The whole year has been the story about the reopening, whether it's going to lead to inflation, are we going to have high enough growth to get the 7 million people that are still without a job that had one pre-pandemic back to work, uh, whether or not the markets are going to continue to feast on endless stimulus from the Fed and from fiscal authorities as well, too. 
But what we didn't expect in that story was this idea that there would be a resurgence of the virus mid-year that would cause us to rethink the path of growth. We're almost there now. I wouldn't say we're at that, but we're very, very close. Jack Farley, dive in. Yeah, uh, Jim, the last time I spoke with you uh, about three weeks ago on Real Vision Live, you noted we were at a point when employees, people would be very willing to go to bars, to go to clubs, nightclubs, whatever, raves perhaps. Um, but then they would, when they were talking to their boss, they'd say that they could not go into work at all because they're of their fear of uh, of the Delta variant. The, the narrative was at the time that the economy would reopen, that people would go back to um, to the office. But Actually, the exact opposite has happened, as as you were were alluding to previously, that people are actually uh, not going back to the office. The rate of, of going back to the office has declined, and they're also now wearing a lot more masks, going out um, a lot less as well. I'm just reading from from a, a note you wrote today. You uh, wrote that corporate managers are fighting a losing battle, trying to get everyone back in the office so that they can pretend it's 2019 again when we are never going back to that. Um, how do you see this playing out going forward? Yeah, so, you know, just to go back to that earlier part, it, it is, you know, you're going to get people at 41,000 at Wrigley Field. You're going to get people going to Yankee Stadium. You're going to get people packing the bars. But the minute you tell them they got to go back to the office, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to go die if, you, if I have to go back to that building one more time. And the reason is they don't want to go back. And the reason they don't want to go back is the managers, the executives, want to go back. The office was structured for them. But the majority of people that work in those offices are clerical, administrative, uh, um, or operational. And they think that they've proved over the last year, they don't have to get up early and ride a stinky train into the middle of town and sit in that office for eight hours a day and ride a stinky train back home. They can do it from home. And that's really where the push-pull is coming. And I think we all knew that the office was going to kind of morph into something over the next couple of decades as technology came. I think we sped it up by 20 or 25 years in the last year or so. And I think that those executive managers that want everybody back, that want to pretend it's 2019, are going to have to have a soul-searching moment and go, what is the purpose of the office? Why do we need it? These people have done it without an office for over a year. And why do we need to force them to come back? And the Delta variant's just giving them another reason to push it off another month, and we'll find another reason to push it off as well, too. And lastly, I'll mention, this really only applies for about 30% of the workforce. Uh, you know, the other 70% of the workforce, doctors, surgeons, uh, policemen, waitresses, you have to go to a place of work. You can't do that job from home. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating point, Jim, about the changing nature of work. And it makes it very hard for employers to push back uh, when their employees can look at them and say, hey, guys, we've been doing this for 18 months now from home, uh, and we've been successful. The reality is, ultimately, if the labor force, particularly in the most competitive areas of the labor force, decides collectively that they don't want to be in an office five days a week, nine to five. It's not the Mad Men era any longer. I don't see how employers have the power to force them back in collectively. It just doesn't seem like it adds up. I think we're in a new phase for the U.S. economy here. I, I agree, too, that you know they really don't have it. And let's 
Remember, those 30% of those jobs, let's talk about what a service job is in 2021. It's very simple. You sit in front of a computer and you manipulate things. It's a version of a computer game is what we do. If you work in financial services like we do, we sit in front of computers all day long, moving stuff around the screen um, as well. And so that can be done anywhere. And it is being done anywhere more and more as we move forward. And it's going to be harder and harder to get people back into the office. Is it worth it to get everybody back? And, and I think we're going to have a very tough time. And what will come after that is the big revaluation of commercial real estate. Yeah. Commercial real estate is still valued like, don't worry, soon enough, it will be 2019 again. And that big, beautiful building off Fifth Avenue that I own, you're going you're gonna to see it full of people again and teeming with everybody on every floor. And when the reality comes that that's not going to happen, and over time, as those leases come up, that building is going to maybe permanently stay half empty, then there, there's going to have to be a revaluation in commercial real estate. But I don't think a lot of people are ready to go there yet, but eventually they're going to have to. Yeah. And this is just a, I think this is one of those events that it's like World War II. There's a before and there's an after. And after looks different than before. And you never go back to before. It's a new world. I mean, potentially maybe some of that uh, commercial real estate gets converted into residential real estate. We have a, you know, we have a very dynamic market. Uh, I suspect that uh, here city uh, authorities will have no choice but to comply. If you have buildings that are 50% empty, it's going to be a just massive hit for the tax base. You got to figure out new ways to revitalize those urban centers, those places where people used to pile into on a stinky train. Jack, what are your thoughts about this? Well, I remember walking through the slush in Midtown in January and just seeing what's in the office buildings, how many of the lights were actually on. And it was something like uh, two or two, two to 5%. And I was thinking, wow, these, these REITs, uh, these commercial property REITs are very overvalued. Uh, that goes to show what little I know, because they have has exploded from January. They continued to rally up until a month ago. Um, and just to throw a name out there, uh, SL Green Realty, they own a lot of buildings here in New York. They have been on the decline uh, from about 80 to 70 over the past month, month and a half. Um, interestingly today, on the news that I mentioned in the, in the intro, that Wells Fargo and BlackRock, two, two of the largest financial companies uh, in the entire world, are delaying their plans to go fully back to work. Interesting today, SLG sort of rallied with with the rest of the market. Um, and I'm just I'm just wondering uh, what's what's the end game here, uh, uh, Jim, in terms of, of financial assets in terms of co- yeah. yeah yeah that's a good question. I, what I what I've argued, I think what a lot of us are arguing is the default position that we're not going back to 2019. Okay, we're going to go somewhere else. And there's going to be some kind of version of hybrid work, work from home, some kind of new way to collaborate with people. Because when I say we're not going back to 2019, that doesn't mean we're all going to be hermits and sit at home and not have any social contact. We're going to definitely have that. But how we're going to do it, that's still an open question. And I think that a lot of managers, a lot of people that work in the real estate business and stuff should start talking about what's the office going to look like in 2023, 2024, instead of all the headlines being, oh, we have to delay the return to 2019 another month into October. Uh, And so I just don't think we're going to go there and we're going to have to start thinking in terms of moving forward. I'm not sure what that's going to be. I don't know if anybody knows what it's going to be. I just know it's not going to be 2019. Uh, And so real estate, uh, you know, the REITs and stuff, I don't think they've had that reckoning yet. They're still believing that it is going to be some kind of return to the office 
at some point. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. Jack, here's a fun fact for you. Largest bank by assets in the United States, JP Morgan Chase. Uh, largest bank by number of employees, Wells Fargo, 233,000. Yeah, that and I, I think BlackRock is the largest um, passive in, passive investment vehicle uh, in the United States. So they're, they're not uh, sm small companies that are making this announcement. I think also Amazon made, they uh, delayed their return to office plan until January. By the way, they when they made these public statements or whether in, internal memos that were re released in, in public uh, you know, journalism articles, uh, they cited the Delta variant. But it's it's definitely related. Um, all of this we're talking about the future. Hey, don't guys, don't forget, don't forget that probably the most influential of all the companies who did it about two weeks ago was Apple. They already announced pre that they were pushing back the uh, return to their office as well too. Right, yeah. exactly. Thanks for bringing that up. So we're talking about the future of work and the future of jobs. We did get some additional jobs data today. The initial claims uh, data coming in for, for the U.S. at 385,000, a hair over the 383,000 that was expected. Um, of course, we're all waiting on the non-farm payrolls number that is uh, going to come in Friday. We had a, we had a huge miss in the ADP on uh, um, yesterday. Today, we're just about where the survey was. Um, what do you think that the non-farm payrolls uh, will be, Jim? And you know, how do you think the market could digest it? Yeah, I, I I'm going to go with you know the idea that. It's going to come in below consensus. Now, if it isn't, it might be just because the seasonal factors in July, because it is the July report that are going to come out, actually will skew very favorably for the report that could push it higher. But I think on a non-seasonal basis, you could see that come in much below what we're expecting. And within the claims numbers, just to pivot back to that, there is two concerning trends. Trend one is we seem to be bottoming out in claims at around 400,000 a week. That is significantly higher than we were pre-pandemic, uh, you know, so that the, the level of claims continues to be higher. But what might be more concerning is 25 states, mainly red states, have already ended the 300, extra $300 a week of uh, unemployment benefits that the federal government was giving came from the American Recovery Act in March. Uh, under the argument that this was paying people to not work, and if we were to end these benefits, it would get people to go back to work. We've got data now up to two months in some of these states. It is unclear that that's making a difference in the work patterns. The 25 states that have ended unemployment benefits really don't have much of a different employment pattern than the 25 states that do have it. If indeed that $300 is not the swing factor that's causing people to want to return to work or not return to work, then it gets back to our earlier conversation about the nature of the office. The nature of work itself and what people think they should get paid to do might be changing that is much bigger than some of these cyclical factors that, well, we don't have enough childcare when the kids go back to school in September, then working age women can come back into the workforce and all of these other arguments that we have. They maybe maybe that's not really what's going on here. That there's something bigger and more secular going on. Like you said, Ash, there's the before and the after, and this might be part of the after. 
Boy, I like your thesis there, Jim, about something bigger going on. Let me draw for you the back, uh, the uh, the jobless claims chart. It looks like this, right? It basically goes horizontal line. Then there's this massive inverted V. It shoots straight up. It drops straight down, uh, and then it begins to roll down slowly, uh, starting in June uh, of 2020 uh, till the present. And now, what you see is like little wiggles. It's it's basically noise, right? So this this thing a little ahead, a little behind. Look, this misses the point I think that you were making, Jim, which is we're understanding this secular reckoning that we're having about the nature of work, uh, about the structure of the U.S. employment market. Uh, and I don't think you're going to get that from looking at the weekly data on on the jobless charts. No, you're not. Other than you know that second point that I brought up that. Uh, the 300, the, the 25 states that have ended the extra unemployment benefits, you're not seeing any difference yeah. in those states than you are with the ones that do have it. And, you know, economists are going to start scratching their head and going, okay, so what is driving this labor market if it isn't that $300, which is what everybody thought it was, you know, two months ago. And that's why all those states ended it. Yeah. And yeah. Jack, maybe that suggests at the margin that uh, it isn't something that's a phenomenon that's just uh, something that's, you know, you think about supply and demand of funds, for example, uh, for unemployment benefit uh, folks, uh, maybe it's something bigger. Yeah. I, I just want to go back to something you said, Ash, about the, the chart, um, the enormous surge in jobless claims. You're absolutely right. It As a result, because it's so big, it makes the sizable differences that we're seeing now uh, seem like they are blips on the chart, whereas in the world of reality, they are not blips on the chart. That's a separate point than the fact that today, the uh, actual number 385 was literally a blip above 383. So it was a a very tiny difference. Going going to the broader macro point you were alluding to, Ash, um, yeah, I, I, I... want to ask uh, Jim, it's a very interesting point you make about how rolling off ending unemployment um, programs is not putting people back to work. What does it mean that we're rethinking work? Does it mean that people are no longer willing, uh, ready, willing, and able to take a $9 an hour job to work at a fast food chain? They're going to demand a higher wage for that job. And is that inflationary for the economy? Yeah, I think think that's exactly what it means. I think that they are not willing to take jobs at the rate that they were taking jobs pre-pandemic, at the ways, wages that they were taking jobs pre-pandemic. And that, you know, we've all heard the anecdotes about, you know, you could, uh, you know, get a job interview and they'll give you a gift card just to take the job interview and the like. And uh, these are just not one-off things, that these are really signals that the attitude about work has changed, especially the attitude at the lower end, you know, that I won't take the job at, at 13 or 14 bucks an hour, maybe not even more, many more at 15. And I need 16, 17, $18 an hour to me to take the job as a stock boy at a, at a, at a big box retailer. Well, then what happens is if that's the entry level wage, everybody else's wage, the person who's been there six months, the person who's been there a year, the whole scale moves higher. And what we all believe about wages, which I think is true, is once you've raised them, it's next to impossible to lower them. And there's a lot of labor shortage in the economy right now. Businesses that don't open full time because they don't have enough workers to to work, they're going to have to start thinking really hard that there isn't just it isn't just the 300 bucks a week. And when that rolls off, people start knocking on your door and take your job. That they're going to have to start paying up. And yeah, that is a sign that we might see a, sp- a spurt of wage inflation to come. Yeah, that's a great answer, Jim, and a great question, Jack, about inflation. Talking of which, to Jack's question, 
your shirt by bonds. Let's talk about inflation and the bond market. What is your thought for what's happening right now in fixed income in the U.S.? I, I I have been a big believer that what was the, what was going to be the driver of interest rates in 2021 was the inflation story. Is it transitory or is it persistent? Take your you take your favorite word right there. I happen to be in the persistent camp, but it, what it is really looking like it is is it's about growth. And if you wanted to talk about the yield, if you look at it, you know I'll draw a chart now, Ash. If you look at a yield of the bond market, it went up. The 10-year yield went up till March and it went down. What other patterns look like that? Well, if you look at uh, the reopening stocks, Goldman Sachs has a health risk index, which we would call the reopening stocks, cruise ships and you know restaurants and the rest of it. Their relative performance looks exactly like the bond market and the case counts in the United States inverted look like the bond market. So what I'm trying to say is bond market looks like it's trading on growth. Why was it soaring to 180 in March? It was soaring to 180 in March because we all thought we were going to get six or seven percent GDP growth. Why are we down to 120 right now in the 10-year note and seeing the fall? Well, the reopening stocks are also struggling as well too. And in an inverted sense, the case counts are going up. I think the market is sending a signal. It's worried about growth, not a recession. We're not worried about we're going to see negative growth or anything. But what we are worried about is there are 7 million people that are still unemployed. Ideally, we should have heady enough growth that we can justify 700,000, 600,000 jobs a month so that in a year, year and a half, we can get most of them back to work. If we are settling into an economy that's going to produce two or 300,000 jobs a month, which pre-pandemic would have been just fine, it's going to take several years just to get everybody back to work. So this is, I think, a concern for the market. And we also know the Federal Reserve has already announced that they think that all inflation is transitory and they're waiting for significant further progress in the employment situation before they start to taper. And you've seen this in the Fed fund futures market. A month ago, it was projecting the first rate hike late 22. Now it's projecting the first rate hike early 23. So as rates have come down, as the reopening stocks have struggled and the fear of growth has come, the market is pricing even further into the distance, the first potential rate hike. Yeah, Jim, very well summarized and cogently said, a good look at what's happening right now in that space. Jack, what do you think? Is it time to talk about EIP 1559 London and what the heck that means? Oh, yeah, you know it. Just so everyone knows, uh, Ash is a cryptocurrency journalist, uh, and and then um, um, Jim is someone who has been following crypto enormously. So basically, Jim and Ash know a ton about Ethereum, crypto, and this EIP thing. I think I am in the view of perhaps a fair amount number of viewers where I barely know anything about it. So I'm looking forward to uh, having Jim and Ash educate me and the audience about what EIP is. Jack, that's perfect. That means you can keep us honest. Okay, yeah. So, uh, Jim, first to you, what are your thoughts? Do you have any big picture view on, on the significance of EIP 1559? Yeah, let me start with um, having the, uh, the the crypto reporter Ernest Pay here. Why don't you explain to everybody what it is to start with before we yeah. jump into uh, what it means? 
Yeah, so let me give you my big picture take on it. So these are the Ethereum improvement proposals. They're basically the requests for proposals that people submit, uh, and then they change uh, the code base uh, in this very sort of gradual process uh, where you see these shifts in the code. Basically, it does a whole bunch of stuff that's going to make people's eyes glaze over if we talk about it in detail. Uh, it changes the way uh, that the supply cap on Ethereum functions. Uh, it does things like fixing uh, fee volatility, which is the change in the amount uh, of gas, which is the, the native token that you pay uh, on the Ethereum network to participate. It's basically the transaction cost of Ethereum, if you want to think of it in a simple way. I, I would say the big takeaway that I would have for this uh, is that the Ethereum uh, network is still very early. It's a work in progress. Uh, if you listen to people who participate in the Ethereum network, they'll tell you about how much they love it, and then they'll complain about the transaction fees. This is one of the first early steps uh, in trying to reduce the fee volatility, but not the fees themselves. I say this because it's important for people to understand that this proposal uh, called London by its code name tease up those later changes that are to come uh, in future months and years. Uh, and of course, we're just around the corner from Ethereum 2.0, uh, hopefully uh, sometime in the next 12 to 18 months going live. So this is very much a work in progress. It's the things that need to change under the hood to make Ethereum really ready for prime time. That's the best I can summarize it. What are your thoughts, Jim? Yeah, I think that's a good summary. I think that there's two things that people need to take away from Ethereum. Um, the the phrase that is being using is called ultrasound money. That by burning, by eliminating a lot of the minor fees that process the uh, the Ethereum network, we're going to actually see the growth rate of the number total supply of Ethereum tokens outstanding maybe peak and go down. It would be deflationary. Less supply, same demand, higher prices. The other thing it will do, hopefully, is improve the customer experience. One of the things that, you know, not to get too far in the weeds, but if you do a transaction in Ethereum and you pay the transaction fee, which is known as gas, you've got a choice as to how much gas you want to pay. Right. If you want to pay less gas, you could wait several days for your transaction to be processed. If you want to pay more gas, you can have your transaction processed in the next 15 seconds. This should hopefully give some, because the problem you used to have is, how much am I supposed to pay to get it done now versus right. get it done later? This should give some clarity to people so I know how much I should pay in order to get it done so I'm not overpaying, I'm not just throwing out some wild big number just to get my right. transaction done and then find out I could have gotten it done for get it processed quicker, and I could have gotten it processed at the same time for half the fee. Think of it as like, you know, the commission. Well, if you want your trade to settle tomorrow, you got to pay me more commission. Otherwise, maybe I'll settle your trade in 10 days, but you don't know what the commission is you're supposed to pay. This should bring some clarity to that situation and hopefully improve the experience this doesn't maybe solve the gas fee, but at least right. I now can see what I'm supposed to do as opposed to guessing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
Yeah. Well, Jim, as the kids say, there's layers to this. And the challenge right. is that uh, this it's basically a competitive bidding market right now for fees to participate uh, to create transactions, except sometimes it doesn't always work that way. Uh, there are challenges with the way the sequencing gets done that even people who put in very large gas fees sometimes don't get their orders filled. So there's all this complexity. By the way, a note to the Real Vision transcriptionist, that's minor fee, M-I-E-N-E-R, not minor fee. So some of these are, can be really substantial. And the reason that I bring it up, that sort of silly orthographic pun, uh, is that in Ethereum 2.0, miners are going away altogether. It's going to be uh, validators that are going to be on a proof of stake network. This is important, I think, to point out, even if you're not sort of following uh, all of the nuances here, the important takeaway to have uh, is that this is a protocol that's still very much in flux. We are in a point now, a kind of a key inflection point uh, in the Ethereum network where we're going to see this shift taking place, again, 12, 18, 24 months, where things are going to be changing really quite dramatically. Uh, so again, even if you're not following every nuance of this, this is something that is going to be changing pretty dramatically uh, in the months and years indeed to come. And I also throw in that the changes you're seeing are more driven by the holders of the tokens. There was always a fear that the driver of a lot of these networks and a lot of these um, uh, cryptocurrencies was the miners themselves, that they would extract certain fees that they, and they were running the show behind the scenes. We used to worry that the Chinese were actually running it because a lot of miner activity or what's called hash rate was taking place in China. That was before they chased them all out in the last few months. Yeah. Uh, and so all of a sudden now, we're seeing with these the EIP-1559, well, the miners' fees are being slashed somewhat or cut. A slash is a different phrase in this space. Uh, it is being cut somewhat. We're going to move to proof of stake, not proof of work. So the miners are going to move to become validators. And right. all of this is supposed to be positive for the token holders and take away that argument that these miners run everything and that these miners are in control. They, they really aren't as much as we think they are. Yeah, and I should add Ethereum now up over 2,800, maybe on this conversation, the clarity that we have brought to this space. Jack, what do you think? How did we do? I think uh, there's a lot of information. I didn't understand all of it, but uh, you know, I, I would say if you want to understand something, you, you're not going to learn it from you know four minutes of listening to people. You, you got to use that four minutes and use that to, to find other sources and then fully, fully understand it. And that's what I, is on my priority list. All this talk of miners uh, with an E uh, is making me think of a question from John Crockett, who asked from the Real Vision Exchange, "What does Jim? See, where does Jim see gold in the current environment? Short term, uh, long as rates continue to fall, given the Delta variant, COVID uh, scare, China fading base rate, easy comps, a lot of questions we got about J Jackson Hole." Uh, John Crockett really threw threw everything at us. Uh, yeah, Jim, if I can drag you uh, out of the virtual world of Ethereum back into the uh, you know the the world of dirt and gravel uh, and gold, um, what's your view on gold? Um, mildly bullish on gold right now, not roaringly bullish. Look, here's the big here's the big issue with the stock market. Earlier, I said the bond market is falling because it's worried about growth. Uh, and the reopening stocks are struggling too. So why is the stock market making new highs? Why is the S&P at new highs uh, as well? Because what comes with that is stimulus. 
And we're starting to see the argument about stimulus, at least initially over the last couple of days, with extending eviction moratoriums. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and 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 the president unbelievably saying, I probably don't have the legal authority to do it, but I'll do it anyway. It'll get tied up in court and it'll all be done and we'll sort it out later or something along those lines. That's the first step of stimulus. So it's almost like we're back to this bad news is good news. Oh, the economy's slowing down. The Delta variant's going up. Oh, good. They're going to throw more money at the stock market, buy stocks. That's not necessarily great for bonds, right? I mean, excuse me, great for gold right now. Um, you would think, oh, that's that means reckless monetary policy, more inflation. I think it does mean more inflation. But over the short term, I think gold is going to be suffering from the alternative of financial assets performing better will do better. Now, you get later in the year and you see real inflation. Let's define real inflation as to the point where the market starts worrying about it being persistent, not transitory. And you start to see interest rates start to move higher because it's persistent. That could be bullish for gold right now. But right now, the reflex in this market is, oh, something bad happened? Don't worry. They're going to print more money or they're going to mail more money in stimulus checks to everybody. Buy spiders. Don't buy GLD. Maybe the buy GLD story will come later this year. That's why I'm mildly bullish on it. I think that this, the long-term st- scenario is setting up good for it. But over the short term, if you want to see an inflow into gold, we're not going to get it. We're going to get people thinking that what's happening means that we need to buy financial assets, mm. not physical assets. Very interesting. Jack, speaking of things that come out of the ground, I understand you have something for us on oil. Yes. Well, uh, on Real Vision w- this week, we are covering oil. Um, and today I spoke to Bob Yager, who's an old hand of the oil industry. He uh, buys and sells futures at, at Mizuho. So he really is deep in the plumbing with speculators, hedgers, people buying futures, people buying buying options. Um, and he shared um, I, I asked him basically, can the, can the rally in oil continue? You know, is the sell-off over the past month? Is that a mere blip? And here is his very detailed answer. Let's take a look. Now let's take a look at the clip. I think it can continue. Um, I don't think it's got a whole lot left. The the high here in WTI, that's U.S. crude oil, is 76.98. I think that it can take that out. But we have to have a uh, – time is running out because it's gasoline season. We have, It's summer driving season. So we have a window right now where – People are returning to the roads for size. Gasoline season was a failure to start the year. Between Memorial Day and Fourth of July, which is a, it was supposed to be the heart of driving season, we had a couple of rainy weekends. We had rain on the East Coast, and it, the traffic just did not materialize. Demand numbers did not materialize. Okay, Jack, characterize those remarks. How do they fit into the bigger picture? I'd say that... Oil is very, very macro. I I asked Bob, what do you think is the greater threat, COVID or OPEC unleashing this, um, you know, the um, uh, incredible amount of supply that they have on the market? And I expected him to say the latter because, you know, if you ask a, a trader of coffee what's the bigger threat, and you know, they're not worried about the Fed, they're worried about the weather. So they're typically very in the weeds. But he he said COVID just because yeah. so, so much of global growth depends on oil, and you could really see a, another um, shock. So that I think you know 
if we do see a huge slowdown in growth, oil will be one of the first sectors, one of the first parts of the market to, to see that weakness. Um, I, I just want to go back to Jim and ask, you know, Jim, I, I'm familiar with the phrase, you know, the revolution is delayed indefinitely. Based on your remarks, would it be say that the the market crash, the the redemption of uh, you know this, all these overvaluations, the market crashing, is that delayed indefinitely until until the Fed tapers? It is delayed for now, as long as the market believes that the Fed is the Fed is is there to and it has its back and or and or the fiscal authorities will continue to have their back as well too. Look, as far as the market goes, there's two things that are happening at once. Earnings, if you look at earnings just on a raw basis, they are great. They are booming, you know, big, huge gains year over year. Yeah, there's a base effect in there too. Huge beats, 85, 90% of the companies are beating Wall Street estimates, almost to the point where we have to ask these analysts why they can't get anything right anymore uh, as well too. But now that I've said the earnings are great, Go look at the valuations, man. You are paying big up for all of those earnings. You are not getting the, you are not getting all that great earnings growth and all those great earnings expectations at a cheap price. You're paying very dear prices for them. Uh, uh, forward PEs and other metrics of valuation are near the highest we've ever seen in, in this market. And underpinning all of that is a belief that risk has been reduced because either the companies will produce earnings to push stock prices higher. Or Jay will turn on his printing press and force them higher. And so that as long as that mentality is there, yeah, I mean, any argument about valuations or anything else is going to fall by the wayside. But the only story that we really got working right now is, like I said, the reopening stocks are not doing well. And the old work-from-home technology stocks are catching a bit of a bid over the last several weeks. Yeah. Guys, hard to believe, but we've blown through the half hour already. Uh, Jim, final thoughts, context. Put it all into case, like for the big picture. So the final thought over the next couple of weeks, you're going to continue to see a rise in the COVID cases. We have been seeing, you got to look at them day to day. So you got to look at Wednesday, Wednesday, Tuesday to Tuesday. We've seen them rise about 40 to 50% uh, from week from weekday, from the day of the week to the day of the week. Friday, a lot of states now report only once a week on Friday. A lot of counties report only once a week on Friday. Friday's number could push 250,000. If not next Friday, next Friday, we could see an all-time daily record. The fear I have with that is that will be a siren that we have to do more lockdowns, more stopping of this, more restrictions here, and that we could really impair the economy. Most people, virologists that look at this stuff say, look, this can peak in two to four weeks, like we saw in the UK. But we're going to get a lot of we're going to get a lot of you know scary headlines before we see it there, and maybe some worries about growth along the way. I can feel in my bones that Jack Farley wants a quick follow up on that. Uh, yeah, well, the, uh, the data on the virus is very important, and I also say the non-farm payrolls is very important. That uh, a lot of assets in the short term will hinge upon that. And uh, we actually will be doing a lot of coverage on that tomorrow at uh, 9 or 10 a.m. Eastern time. I can't exactly uh, remember which. I'll be speaking to Julian Brigden on Twitter Live to get his uh, the moment of take. Uh, and then I'll also be speaking to Eric Basmajan um, on a Real Vision Live at noon uh, Eastern. I also should say uh, tomorrow is the conclusion of our oil week. We're ending strong with Tony Greer and Tracy Shuchart. And then from that point on, 
we're going to be broadening the conversation, not just oil, but inflation, deflation in general. On next Wednesday, on the 11th, there's the Consumer Price Index. All eyes are going to be on that. Um, we're going to try and get a lot of uh, Real Vision fan favorites, uh, people who have been very strong views, You know, Peter, Bo <clears throat> Peter Bookbar, Steve Van Meter, on, on both sides of the issue. Um, so definitely stay tuned for that down the road. Uh, Ash, back to you. Jack, nine or ten tomorrow. Why don't you just crash on the chair behind you in the office? You can literally just like get up, like button up the shirt, and jump back on camera. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Jack, thanks for joining us. Jim, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Looking forward to the next time we can have you back on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Thank you. I enjoyed it, guys. Thanks for watching, everybody, and thanks for your questions. Bye, Bonds Wear Diamonds. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.